0: Just a reminder, the Lord sent them to Ohio. When the saints were in New York, the Lord sent them to Ohio to give them two things, endow them with power and to give them the law. We've talked about that endowment with power. That was a very significant thing, what happened in the Kirtland Temple. Moses coming, Elias coming, and Elijah coming. And we've talked about each one of them. And then he sent them to Ohio to give them the law. And I just don't hear a lot of people talking about our law. In fact, I hear the Old Testament law spoken of more frequently in the church than our law. God has given us a law. And we really need to champion it and keep it near to our hearts. Paul asked the saints in his day to write the law on the fleshy tablets of their hearts. This law needs to be written on the fleshy tablets of our heart. So what section? Section 42. Section 42 is designated by Joseph Smith as embracing the law of the church. That's a big one. Come on in. I'm gonna shut these doors. It's really, really loud in here. Ah, that's a little better. Section 42 is what Joseph Smith designates as the law of the church. Now, you will find all sorts of wonderful commandments. I don't, in any way, want to suggest that there's only 10. But I love to present 10. It's a good round number from the Old Testament, right? The law of the Latter-day Saints. Can I yell it loud enough? Can I just scream from the rooftops? that God has given this church and this people a law. And it should define us. So we did seven last week. Am I remembering correctly? We all on the same page? So just to review, he starts with several Old Testament ones that we kind of carry over. Thou shalt not kill, we're all in sections 42. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. And then normally what would come next on that list, thou shalt not commit adultery was the Old Testament version, but the, new the, the, book, the doctrine and covenants version is so much better. Instead of don't commit adultery, our law is thou shalt love thy spouse with all thy heart. That's verse 22, thou shalt love thy spouse Now clearly, that's a much higher law than don't commit adultery, is it? Thou shalt love thy spouse with all thy heart and shall cleave unto them. That means before you're married, you cleave unto no one until you can cleave unto your spouse. And then you cleave unto them and no one else. That's our law. We should be known for loving our spouse Above all else. Then, I love this one. Thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. How's the church doing on that one? (laughs) Thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. That led us to the bulk of our discussion last time. And I'm actually going to break the verse into two we ought to go there, is everyone in section 42? I just don't want anyone to be questioning where we're reading, I want you to see it right here in the text. So just if you're take, keeping track, 18, thou shalt not kill, 20, thou shalt not steal, 21, thou shalt not lie, 22, thou shalt love thy wife or thy husband, depending on how it, who you are, and shall cleave unto her and none else. Verse 27, thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. And now verse 30. I'm going to break this into two, because as I read the Doctrine and Covenants, these two ideas are what's going to be emphasized. Thou wilt remember the poor. We spent a lot of time last week talking about that. I remind you of Zacchaeus who climbed a tree so he could see Jesus, because what weren't they doing? Why would he need to climb a tree? They should have let him in. They should have let him into the circle, but they were keeping him outside the circle, like we often do. And so Jesus did what? Two things. Remember the two words? Please always remember those two verbs. Jesus looked and saw. Jesus looked and saw. Are you looking for the people that God is noticing? Do you see them? I love that Jesus told Zacchaeus, I must eat at thy house. Why must? Because no one else did. They should have, so I will. It is my testimony that if Jesus were to come on Sabbath day, I think he would very much like to come into your ward and speak and say something, wouldn't he? But I think he would say what? I can't come to the church because I, I must go there. And what is he really saying? I must because none of you did. Ouch. Thou wilt remember the poor. Now, we skipped the rest. We skipped what I'm going to list as commandment number seven, which comes right out of that same verse, verse 30. It's, that's where we'll start tonight. I just want to mem- we went to verse 40. What a great connection to that one. First, he says, Thou wilt remember the poor. And then in verse 40, he says very plainly, what does he say? Modern day commandment to the Latter-day Saints Thou shalt not be proud in thy heart. How are we doing? 40. How are we doing? How are you doing? Thou shalt not be proud. So we talked about Book of Mormon definition of pride. And how do we, what are some of the antidotes? That's if you want to get better. If you want to overcome your pride, um, let me give you a great book. It's called the Book of Mormon. It's all you'll need. That is the greatest course on understanding and overcoming pride you'll ever read. Okay, so now we're going to do three tonight. I left three boards because I want to see if I can give myself lots of room. Let's go back to verse 30. So I I choose to present this by breaking verse 30 into two commandments. If you ever teach this, you do it however you want. But I want to present the seventh commandment separate from the sixth. Thou wilt remember the poor. I take that as a separate commandment. Remember the poor. Thou wilt look for and see them. And then he says, and consecrate. Thou shalt consecrate. Now that should sound familiar to everyone who is under covenant. Everyone who has gone to sacred places has has given a promise to consecrate. Thou shalt remember the poor and consecrate. So let's talk about the law of consecration. Now what flows, just what flows out of verse 30 is the outer law of consecration. That is a subject we do not have time to get into in this class. And some people brush it off and say, well, I don't have to live the law. We're not supposed to live the law of consecration. Well, in the in the outer sense, you're correct. That is a future day. So let me show you what the Lord did before he gave that in 42. If you go back to section 38, the brilliance of what the Lord is doing is let me lay out what I call the inner law of consecration. I have found that there's an outer law and an inner law. What is the current outer law of consecration? It's the law of tithing. That is the outer law. Will it always be the law of the tithe? No. Someday the outer law will be the fullness of the law of consecration. Now, if we had more time, we would talk about what what does that day look like? What is the outer law of consecration? But to me, the the real heart and soul of this commandment comes a a few sections early where the Lord lays out attitudes. I think the problem with the church today isn't that, let me say it differently. I don't know how many members of the church would be willing to live the outer law of consecration because what we're lacking is the inner law. So what I want to do is let's talk about the inner law, attitudes of consecrated people. I think the
1: inner law of consecrated
0: people is the law of sacrifice. It's related, it is. There's no question it's related. But there's a little bit of a difference. Sacrifice is a willingness to let go of all that's celestial and all that's terrestrial. As we march to our celestial kingdom, we march through the telestial world and the terrestrial world. How much of the telestial world can I take into the celestial kingdom? Therefore, I have to do what? If I want to go to the celestial kingdom, I have to? Let go. And then I get into the terrestrial world. How much of the terrestrial world can I take into the celestial kingdom? None. So what do I have to do? I have to let go. Now that's looking at it from the side of the law of sacrifice. But becoming a celestial person is a different perspective. Let me present it this way. Name one possession that God has that he isn't freely willing to give to every single one of us. Can you? Does God have any possession at all that he's not willing to give to every single one of us? It's then hypocritical to live my life thinking that I shouldn't give to God everything that I have. Let me give you an example. What is the most godly thing a human being can do? Procreate. To whom does our Heavenly Father give that ability? To every single one of us. There is the celestial. The law of sacrifice is about letting go of lesser things. But the law of consecration is about becoming celestial. There are attitudes I must have if I'm going to be a celestial person. They are the attitudes that God has. So let's go through Section 38, now we've been in 42 where the, he presents the law, but let's go through section 48, 38. Let me, I, I, unfortunately, I could, we could spend hours here. We only have one hour. And so we're probably only gonna get through four. I'd love to get through more. In my temple class, we did an hour on each one of them and it was wonderful, but now I have an hour for all four of them. So if I speak really fast and I'm going too fast, you calm me down but I get very excited about this subject. Let's talk about celestial attitudes. These aren't things I need to let go of. These are things I need to acquire. I must have celestial attitudes if I'm gonna go to a celestial kingdom. So let's do number one, ready? Number one, section 38. Everyone there? Um, Let's read 16. And then again, down in 39, 16 and 39. He's now again, he's just kind of hinting. He's just kind of subtly. He's going to pick these up later on in the Doctrine and Covenants, but allow me to present them because they're all laid out in 38. Attitude number one. And for your salvation, I give unto you a commandment, for I have heard your prayers and the poor have complained before me and the rich have I made. And then this statement. All flesh is mine. All that I am is God's. It was a free gift from God. Now think about how that attitude will completely change how I live. All that I am is because of God. If I make a living with my brain, and it's my brain, what attitude will I have with the money that comes in because of it? If I make my money because of my voice, and it's my voice, what's my attitude to the money that comes in, and all the popularity that that brings? It's mine. But what if my attitude is that my gift, my voice, my brain, my hands, my intelligence, was simply a gift from God. Now what happens to everything that comes into my life because of my abilities? It's all his. It's all his. Now we're gonna add all that I am to that. We're gonna add verse 39. What does he say in verse 39? In 16 he says, all that I am is God's. And then in verse 39 he adds, All that I have is his. Every possession of mine came from him, right? When you buy a house, before you buy the house, they'll do a title search, meaning they need to make sure that the owner of the house has the legal rights to sell it. So where did they get it, where did they get it, where did they get it, they'll do a title search. But anyone who ever does an honest title search is gonna find what eventually? I bought my house from someone who bought the house from someone who bought the house from someone. If I go back far enough, what am I gonna find? Someone? Someone just claimed it. Someone claimed the land. And whose was it when they claimed it? Therefore, my house is his. I love my iPad, but where did everything inside this iPad come from? We either grew it, mined it, fished it, pulled it out of the earth somewhere, right? And whose was it? It was his. All that I am is his. All that I have is his. Now, here's the irony. If I have that attitude, what's the next sentence? If my attitude is that all that I am and all that I have is his, then someday, who wants to say it? All that he has, all that is. There it is. There's consecration. And that's why it's fair for him to ask it of me. If I'm willing to have this attitude that everything I have and everything that I am belongs to God, then everything that belongs to God, He's willing to give me. I
1: think that's the true doctrine of um, parent-child relationship. Yeah. Like the, the prodigal son story, the older son, he, um, he was still working. He wasn't a servant, but he still was working. And so he inherited everything. He did, his work didn't earn him. Everything he inherited because he was the son. But as a son, he still serves his father because that's the real nature of how relationships should be. And as yeah. children of God who gave us life, and just because we love him, if he's our parent,
0: he's our father, we serve him. And yeah. in the end, we inherit because that's just the nature. Do you sense that attitude? So let me give you a couple let me turn to, Turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. This is absolutely beautiful. John gets to see into the celestial kingdom. John gets a little glimpse into the celestial kingdom, and guess what he sees? Revelation chapter 4, he sees saved worlds, saved people, and saved animals. And if we had time, we'd talk about those saved animals, because those saved animals spoke to John. Saved animals spoke to John. That's a subject for another day, but I can't not mention it. (laughs) Celestial resurrected animals speak, and I can't wait for that day. I can't wait to have a butterfly land on my shoulder and have a talk to me about oxidative phosphorylation. (laughs) Or a cockroach who's celestialized comes out and talks to me about justification and sanctification. (laughs) Anyway, subject for another day. But go to the second to the last verse. Tell me what the celestial people that John sees in the celestial kingdom are doing. Say that again, Caitlin when i make it to the if i have a celestial attitude and i make it to the celestial kingdom i will do what i will take this crown and throw it to him as an acknowledgement of what this is not my crown this is his do you sense the attitude I don't have inspired dreams, but I have a friend who gets, that's how God speaks to my friend. And I'm a little jealous because that's not how God speaks to me, but he has the most incredible dreams. He shared a dream with me that I now claim. I'm gonna pretend it's mine because I have told this story thousands of times since he told it to me, but here's the dream. Allow me to personalize it because it it shaped my life. He dreamt that he was a beggar in medieval times. Rejected by society, wearing rags, kicked out into the street, the cobblestone street. No one would bother to take the time of day for the beggar. And then trumpets announce the coming of the king into the village. And no one wants the king to see a beggar. So they kind of brush the beggar off and kind of over there on the side. And the king's carriage stops right where the beggar was. And the king gets out of the carriage and walks over to the beggar and takes a jewel from his crown and hands it to the beggar and says, hold this up. So the beggar holds up the jewel and it starts to glow a brilliant light. And in the light of the jewel, he's dressed like the king. He's no longer wearing rags. In the light of the jewel, he's dressed like a king. And as soon as everyone starts to see that he's dressed like the king, they start to bow. And that's the dream. I am a beggar. All that I am, all that I have, I am a beggar. To whom God gave a jewel. And if you see anything in me, you see it through the light of the jewel. If you really knew who I was, you would know that I'm a beggar. That is a celestial attitude. Not to demean myself, but to acknowledge that all that I have is because of him. So in that spirit, knowing I'm speaking to college students who are going out into the world, and some of you are going to make a lot of money, and some of you are going to be well-known, allow me to pass on some advice that Moses gave to the children of Israel when they were about to go into a promised land. You are sitting on the edge of a promised land. So if, you'll, if you want to join with me, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Here is a beautiful piece of advice, and I now give it to you. Wherever you go, some of you are going to be very, very successful. And some of you are going to be very well known. And I would I would pass this on, starting in verse 7. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land. This is the life that you've been dealt. The life you are going into. The Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land. A land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that... That spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, olive and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it. Verse 10, when you have eaten and are full. I plead with you to bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Beware, verse 11. That you forget the Lord thy God verse 12 when thou hast eaten and art full when you've built goodly houses and dwell therein when your herds and multiply flocks multiply when thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied when your stocks multiply when the size of your house multiplies the quality of your car multiplies when those things happen don't be lifted up in your heart and forget the Lord. I know what you're going to say. Here's the temptation. Verse 17, what are you going to say? What's the first word? My. My, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant. That's law number one, or inner law of consecration number one. All that I am and all that I have his. Now, if we push that a little bit, what's the only thing that's yours? And that's the only thing that he can't take away. What happens if God takes away agency? He ceases to be God. What did that cost God in premortal life to grant men agency? Isn't that interesting? The only thing he can't take away is the only possession that's truly mine. It's the only gift he really wants from me. Everything else is his anyway. It's like if my my children sometimes say, Dad, can I have $10 to buy you a gift? Sure. And I smile and I chuckle, but who's buying the gift? And then I'll get a son who my birthday was on Sunday who had no money and wrote me a letter that said, Dad, all that you are, I want to be. Now, what was the greatest gift I received? And I learned what I was trying to give my Heavenly Father in that. Okay, thoughts on number one? Kate, Caitlin. So, so like that works in
1: world, uh, in yep. Like, everything that we do should like reflect our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. Like everything we are and what we represent. Like it's easy to do that when you're missionary because like that name tag represents Jesus. But even when you take it off, you should still be
0: outwardly representing Jesus yep. because He gives you That's right. Beautifully stated. Let me show you, before we leave this, let me show you was Jesus true to that concept? Let me show you one of my absolute favorites. Turn to section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the only place in Scripture where Jesus talks about what he accomplished in Gethsemane. He's talking about himself. He's drawing attention to himself. Now, the point is, if you don't repent, you're going to have to suffer as I did. So let me tell you what that is about. But it's the only place where Jesus talks about his own suffering, his own accomplishment. And look at the end of verse 18. He doesn't even finish the sentence. He starts to talk about himself. And before he even finishes the sentence, tell me what he does. Nevertheless... Glory be to the Father. Do you see the attitude? Even Jesus said what? All that I am and all that I have is his. And if I have that attitude, then all that he has and all that he is will be mine. Beautiful relationship, right? Okay, let's do... The second one, back to section 38, the preparatory section to the law. Doctrine and Covenants section 38. I'll let you read it, and then we'll see if we can just... Now, you're going to see why I went to number eight last week. I wanted to at least introduce the subject so that we could spend a little bit more time tonight. So, thou shalt not be proud in thy heart, because what's the attitude of consecration? Back in section 38, I need someone to read 24 through 27, But I'm going to stop you. Please, Sister Whitehead. And
1: let every man esteem his brother as himself and practice virtue and holiness before me. And again, I say unto you, let every man esteem his brother as himself.
0: I need to pause. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen Heavenly Father say, hey, I need to say something? Oh, let me say it again. That's not frequent in Scripture, it's not very often where the Lord says, hey, let me tell you a truth. Let me say it again. That's his way of saying what? This is very important to him. And the attitude is, you're not better than anyone. Keep going. For what man among you,
1: having 12 sons... And there's no respecter of them, and they serve him obediently. And he saith unto the one, Be thou clothed in robes, and sit thou here. And to the other, Be thou clothed in rags, and sit thou there. And looketh upon his sons, and saith, I am just. Behold, this I have given unto you as a parable, and it is even as I am. I say unto you, Be one, and if ye are not one, ye are not mine.
0: In other words, how much does God value each and every person on this planet? How much do we value each other on this planet now let me point out what I value and how I treat it go hand in hand if I had a dollar bill what makes that dollar bill worth a dollar the paper it's printed on is not worth a dollar what makes it worth a dollar I make it worth a dollar I accept its value And so I treat that piece of paper better than I treat other pieces of paper, right? That piece of paper has more value, therefore I treat it differently. Now, what if that piece of paper had two zeros after that one? Do I treat that piece of paper the same as the other one? Why not? They're both pieces of paper. I value the other one more. And where the value increases, the way I treat it increases. What if that piece of paper had six zeros after the one? How would you treat that piece of paper? Would any of you wad it up and put it in your pocket? As the value you place on something increases, so does the way you treat it. The attitude here is that God values even the least of us as infinitely value. Do I? In order to treat people horribly, I have to devalue them. Sometimes I even have to dehumanize them For years, this country enslaved people. And the only way you can do that is if you dehumanize them. Because then you're justified in treating them because they have less value. Now, the challenge we have today is we have to see the value God places in each one of us. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Now, I admit, fully admit, this is a horrible way. Do not get cut up in my numbers. My numbers are not the point here. I'm just trying to make a point. So allow me to just use numbers to illustrate. These numbers are infinite in reality. But allow me to just use some finite numbers to make a point. If this is God, and this is me, and this is God's love for me, Now, for the sake of discussion, I'm going to assign that the number, the value 100. That number represents God's love for me. Now, over here is someone I love. So, this is a pretty high number. And when this is a high number, it does not surprise me in any way to realize what's this number. This number is 100. And that doesn't come as a shock because I'm trying to improve that number to 100. But here's the challenge. Over here is someone I hate. Someone who conned me. Someone who ripped me off someone who abused me, someone who hurt me. We all have one. Now this number is pretty low. Think of the person for whom that number is the lowest. Now here's the harsh reality. What is this number? What is it? 100. This number is 100. This number certainly isn't. Now let me point out the challenge. If I want to go where he is, what must this number become? 100. If it isn't, can I go where he is? I cannot. Sometimes we use this number to measure our celestialness. We use this measure to measure my capability of love. That's a poor measure of it, isn't it? Because loving this person is easy for me. And I don't don't envision a challenge. I want this number to be 100. 100. I'm striving to make that number 100, but I don't want this number to be 100. I delight in keeping this low because they hurt me and they should suffer. But if I'm going to go where he is, what must that number be? The same as that. And so Heavenly Father says, practice that. Practice that today. What he's saying is value all. Like he does. You must see the value in all. I admit I have a lot to work on. I freely admit I have a lot to work on, but I know what I need to work on and that's the temple covenant. That's the consecrated attitude. All that I am is His and the value of all the people around me is infinite. And I must learn to see that value the way he sees it or else I cannot go where he is.
1: So how do you improve your number to the person you hate?
0: How do you improve your number? Anyone want to answer that? Um, isn't there a scripture in Hebrews that talks about like Christ is the veil? Uh-huh. in other words i have to do what i can to see this the more i see this the more this number will increase let me give you an example mosiah chapter 9 verse 1 turn there mosiah chapter 9 verse 1 zenith was sent as a spy spies are supposed to hate and want to hurt right i want to destroy you where are you weak how can i destroy you What changed for Zenith? When he saw that which was good among them. He didn't want to hurt them. How could you see what is good among them? Who sees what's good among them? The best way to increase that is to see this or to ask him to help you see this. Let me give you an interesting verse. Hold on, let me give you an interesting verse. Moroni chapter 7 about charity. How do you obtain charity? Verse 48, he makes it very clear. How do you get charity? Charity is the ability to love at 100. That's charity. When you love as Christ loves, you have charity. And where does charity come from? Who wants to read verse 48? Moroni 748. Where do you get charity? There's two things you need to do to get charity. You want to increase this number? Do two things. Number one, Jay, read please read it.
1: Yes. Wherefore, my beloved brethren. Pray unto the Father with all the energy of, the, of hearts that ye may be filled with this
0: love. So number one is you gotta ask for it. Charity and love is a gift from someone who can. You have to ask for it. And then what do you do? Yep. Which
1: he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his son.
0: So if you want to love like Jesus, how do you start? You start following him. You do what you can to live like he lives. The more you follow him, the more you imitate him, the more you will what? See what he sees and love as he loves. Hard, right? How hard is this in our world today? How hard is this? Now, last point, I, I, I got to stop. I, turn with me to proclamation on the family. The brethren, 15 apostles, seers, and prophets, debated. I don't even know how long they debated. And they ended up with a list of nine principles that make families successful. Why nine? Why nine? Do you think they debated that list? Do you think it ever grew and then shrank and then grew? And they just talked about, and they finally settled. You guys have all done group work, right? What's the hardest part about doing group work? Wordsmithing. How do you get 15 prophets, seers, and revelators to agree on what what principles make families successful? I can't even imagine the debate that went into this list of nine. Can you find the list? So big paragraph in the second column, right in the middle. Successful families are built on nine principles. And I love that they're in pairs, right? I pair them up. So there's two pairs, and then there's a triplet, and then two pairs. What are, the two, what are the first two pairs? In order for a family and a marriage to be successful, God has to be a part of it, so what are the first two? Faith and prayer. And then what are the second two? Repentance and forgiveness. And what are the last two? Play and work. Play and work. Now there's a trilogy. If you ask me, in my opinion, that trilogy is charity. Charity breaks down to three things. What are they? Respect, love, and compassion. Allow me to suggest that this is I see your value, I see what God sees in you, I see you. Love is a choice subject for another day. I choose you, and I feel what you feel. That's charity. But it starts with which one? I see you. And that includes the people who have wronged you and hurt you. I see you. Do you understand what you covenanted when you promised to live the law of consecration? I value you like I'm trying to, like he values you. Okay, we got to move on. Sorry. Any thoughts on number two? Now, do you see why these are essential to living the outer law of consecration? I will never... I will never give up my possessions and pay more tithing than 10% unless what? I see everyone's value and I recognize that all that I have came from Him. Okay, let's do number three. It's worded beautifully in 38, but we're going to jump to 104. So start in 38, verse 17. And then we're gonna to jump to 104. Let's just read 17. One, 38, 17. I have made the earth rich. Now, in 104, he's gonna say that same thing, but then he's gonna add the next phrase. I want to connect the next phrase. So turn to 104, verse 17. Same verse. But from 38, go to 104. And what does he add to? The earth is rich. The earth is rich means there is enough, there is enough for everyone. If I don't have that attitude, what do I have a tendency to do? If I don't think there's enough, then I hoard. Do you know how much, do you know how many people this earth could feed? US News and World Report. I won't, we won't read it. You'll, if you want the data, I can send it to you. But U.S. News and World Report years ago ran an article on how many people this earth could feed. Any guesses? There's seven, mil, seven billion people on this planet. How many people could this earth feed? 15? 300 billion. The conclusion of the article was 100 billion people. A bi- We can easily feed 80 billion today. And with improved technology, we should be able to feed a hundred billion people. So why are there starving people on this planet? Because a whole lot of people have what attitude? There's not enough. Therefore, I need to hoard it all. Let me show you the opposite. Okay. Turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 is the opposite, and Jesus condemns this in Luke. He's rebuking this, so Luke chapter 12, coming up and come follow me. So starting in verse 16, he gives a parable. Notice he says in verse 15, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the thing which he possesses. And then he gives a parable. The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room to bestow my fruits. I have more than I can store. I have more than I would use. I have more than I need. And I think he's even saying, I have more than I could use. So, tell me what the man does who has more than he needs. Read it. Tell me what he does. He builds a bigger barn. barn. Because why? I can't give it up. That's scarcity mentality. Now, here's the thing I love about God and the celestial kingdom. Is there, are there borders? Are there only so many people that fit in heaven? How many people could go to heaven? Anyone who wants to. Somehow we've got to change our attitude that says, I have enough. I have more than I need. Why don't you take the rest? You see when we will live consecration? The whole spirit, what we'll talk about in another day when we do the outer law of consecration is what do you do after you consecrate? You don't keep consecrating. You consecrate once. And then what do you do? You receive an inheritance. You receive a a surplus. You receive a stewardship. And then you spend the rest of your life living what law? After the initial consecration, what law do you live? It's the law of surplus. Surplus. Meaning, what do I give the church? Anything I don't need. need. And if there's a month where I don't have enough, then the church gives me. But all those months where I have more than I need, what do I do with more than I need? I just give it away. So what should I be living today? I should be living the law of surplus to the degree that I can. Now, does the Lord expect me to take care of mine? That's going to be number four. I'm going to take what I need and I'm gonna be honest with what I need and I've wrestled, do I really need a 12.9 inch iPad Pro 6? And the answer is yes, (laughs) I do. And I've searched my soul a lot and I thought, you know what, I believe I put that to good use and I use it for what it is intended to, to use. And so I really don't have a concern to say to myself, these are what I need. I'm being honest with God, and that's a hard conversation to have. But my attitude is, everything else is His. That's an attitude. There is enough. I don't need to hoard it there is enough so number three there is enough for all you see how that uh, that attitude interferes with consecration okay let's do number four let me read it in the text and the reason i want to say i wanted to save this is because so number seven is thou shalt consecrate And number nine is this same thing. Number nine on our commandments is the same as number four here. So allow a little repetition. But the fourth attitude of consecration. So let's go back and read it in 38, section 38. I'm going to read it in verse 40. 41 and 42. Well, Let's just read verse 40. I give unto you a commandment that every man, both elder, priest, teacher, and member, go to with his might, with the labor of his hands. Now watch how that changes in section 40. Watch what that morphs into. Go work. Now we often associate the word we're about to we're about to talk about, to not being lazy. So don't be lazy, work hard, work hard. But may I suggest there's more to it than that. As I've read the Doctrine and Covenants and tried to understand what the Lord meant by what he's about to say, I believe it's a whole lot more than don't be lazy. So what does, in section 38, go work hard turn into in section 42 which is the law of the church. So now we get to commandment number 9 verse 42, section 42 verse 42. Don't be idle, don't be idle is the phrase. And I'll I'll admit for most of my life I interpreted that as simply meaning don't be lazy. But as I've read the Doctrine and Covenants, I believe there's a lot more to that than don't be lazy. I think what he's saying, I'm going to make my case in a minute, but let me just lay it out there. I think what he's saying is, you take care of you. Don't shift the burden of your responsibilities onto someone else. I think that's what he's meaning by saying, don't be idle. Don't make someone else pick up the slack because you're not taking care of your responsibilities. You take care of you. Now I I bring this up tenderly because we all need to get better. Some of you are letting mom and dad take care of way too much. There is that defining moment where you say, I am responsible for me. I will take care of me. It is idleness to shift the responsibility to someone else when I can do it for myself. That's very different than don't be lazy. Don't let someone else. don't force someone else to pick up the slack and do what you should have done. Now, everyone, ever since President Kimball, everyone who ever talks about this subject always quotes this. I just think this is the definitive statement. I've seen so many prophets since President Kimball quote this very quotation. So we're just gonna read it from President Kimball. Anyone wanna read? Jay, top quotation when it comes up. Spencer W. Kimball said
1: The responsibility for each person's social, emotional, spiritual, physical, or economic well being rests first upon himself, second upon his family, and third upon the church.
0: Okay, let me pause. Maybe there's one more. There might be one more because there are certain things that the church does not do. Can you name one thing that I might turn to the government? A legitimate thing. If you can't pay your tuition, and education is valuable, it will change your future. And if you can't pay your tuition, where do you go first? You go to your family. And if your family can't pay your tuition, in our day, in the United States, the church does not get involved in tuition. So maybe there's a fourth one, right? Maybe there's a legitimate reason to go to the government. But allow me to say It is a violation of the law of consecration to let the government do something that you can do yourself. That is a grown up thing. I will take care of me. Now it is not reasonable that my eight year old son or even my 18-year-old son, whose focus should be on school and growing up and being a kid, it's not reasonable that my children, who still are young, should take care of themselves, food, clothing, shelter, home. So to whom do they shift that burden? My eight-year-old shifts that burden to... His parents, and I gladly take it. I gladly accept the responsibility for my children, but there comes a moment, there's that harsh moment where my children need to do what? Thank you, Dad, but I will take care of me. It's an awkward moment. I've had five kids marry, and every time they marry, there's kind of this awkward moment. I have a wonderful son who was still on my, thanks to Obamacare, my kids are on my insurance until they're 26. And some of them, they get married. My son got married, but he was under my insurance. So he went in and got a root canal. And he got the bill for it for $250. Now tell me what his thinking was. Can you see it? He's still in college, newly married, taking care of himself. Dad, I'm under your insurance still. So what was he kind of saying? Hey, you should take care of this bill. It's a lot of money. And I said to him, it is a lot of money. Good luck with that, son. (laughs) There's an important lesson for my son to learn. As a matter of consecration, one of the defining attitudes of consecration is, I will take care of my needs. And if I can't, if I legitimately can't, I'll turn to my family. And if my family can't, I'll turn to the church. But I'm not gonna put anything on my family that I can do for myself. And some of you need to repent. Some of you are letting your mom do a lot more than she should. And don't let that rob you of an opportunity to practice consecration. Clean up your own mess. Do your own laundry. It's a grown up moment to say, mom, I can start the washer. I can wash my own clothes, thank you. Now, if you can't, or if you're not around, and mom goes in and takes your clothes and washes them. Okay, that's fine. But I'm going to do what I can. Jay, finish this quotation.
1: If he is a faithful member thereof, no true Latter-day Saints, while physically or emotionally able, will voluntarily shift the burden of his, own, of his own or his family's well-being to someone else. So long as he can, under the inspiration of the Lord and with his own labors, he will supply himself and his family with the spiritual and temporal necessities of life.
0: That's consecration. That's inner law number four. I will take care of me. And if I can't, I'll turn to my family. And if my family can't, I'll turn to the church. And maybe turn to the government. But I am not going to turn to anyone. No true Latter-day Saint, while he is physical, physically or emotionally able, will voluntarily shift the burden of his own or his family's well-being to someone else. That's idleness. And the Lord says, both here, number nine, in our list of 10, and here, number four, the repetition should be significant. Thou shalt not be idle. But the attitude is, I will take care of me. Tell me what come follow me is supposed to be teaching the church. Stop doing what? What's the church saying? Stop putting your spiritual growth on on the church, own it, and do it at home. Do it on your own. It is not the church's responsibility for you to grow spiritually. You own that. I accept the responsibility for me. Okay, comments for number four? Thoughts? Any one of these four? All that I am is his. That's an attitude of consecration. All that I am, all that I have is his. I am no better than anyone else. I see everyone's value and I'm gonna treat them that way. There is enough for all. And the last one is, I'll write it. I will take care of mine. Any thoughts? Hard to do, not easy. Yeah, I get it. But does anyone take care of God's possessions? Does he, is he dependent in any way? Does he need a loan? Does he need anyone else to take care of his? Therefore, to be what he is, to go where he is, what attitude must I have? I will do all that I can to take care Of my responsibilities. So pay your dentist bill. (laughs) How many of you don't go to the dentist until your mom pushes you to? Stop that. Stop being dependent on your mommy. Love her to death. But say to her, I will take care of all that I can take care of. I can call the dentist mom, and I can get myself to the dentist. Does that help? It's a hard, consecration is not an easy task. Remember, which law is this, in the, which covenant is this in the temple? This is the last one. This is the culminating covenant because this is where we promise to be like God. How does God live? Tell me how Heavenly Father lives. If you want to be what he is and go where he is, you need to practice living as he lives. So live the law of consecration. So that's number seven, consecrate. Number eight, thou shalt not be proud in thy heart. Number nine, thou shalt not be idle. Let's just do one more. I, we should probably be nine. I, I can't be incomplete, I gotta complete the list. So if, we li- if we've listed all the others, we need to list number eight, number nine. All right, number nine. Thou shalt not be idle. This is, what verse was that? 42, that was 42, right? Okay, section 42, verse 42. Those of you, if you're trying to make a list, let's do that. This was 18, 19, 21, 22, 27, 30, 30, 40, 42. Number 10, verse 45. Verse 45. What kind of people should the Latter day Saints be? This is a beautiful one. Anyone want to read it? Section 42, verse 45. Caitlin?
1: That thou shalt weep for the loss of them
0: that die. Just pause right there. The rest is great, but I want to pause right there. Thou shalt live together in love, insomuch that thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die. And especially people who don't have the hope of a glorious resurrection. We should be, of all the things, of all the things that should define the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. If we're going to build the celestial city that we've talked about, what must define us as a people? We live together in love. How about with people who don't believe what we believe? Does it apply? Thou shalt live together in love. To what degree, to what degree do we live together in love? That it hurts us when that bond is broken for a while, when they leave, when they die. It hurts us. I hope Caitlin weeps like a baby the day she walks into the MTC, and I hope her family goes home and weeps like a baby and then stop weeping and get to work. Got it. But what does that weeping mean? Why do we weep? Because she's gone, and I miss her, and I love her, and that weeping should characterize us. We live together in love. Now, are you seeing any patterns come up in these? Are you seeing any connections between them? Tell me what's the connection. What's the common element in all of this? Treating people the way they should be treated because of the reasons they should be treated that way. If ever the Latter-day Saints should be something, we should treat Heavenly Father's children the way He treats them because of the reason He treats them that way. I bear you my testimony that this church has been given a law. Sorry, i got to complete this. Someday, I'm just going to do this. And they'll fly from there to there. I bear you my testimony that this church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, has been given a law. I plead with you to write it on the fleshy tables of your heart. I would plead with you to talk more about this law than the Old Testament law. I would plead with you to talk about it a lot. Give sacrament meeting talks on it, teach lessons on it, have family home evenings on it. Let this law live in your soul. I bear you my testimony that this law should define who we are as a people. That we remember the poor. That we have attitudes of consecration. That we live together in love. And that of all the people we love, the one we love the most besides God is the one who I have the most stewardship to protect and to care for. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.